1: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm joined by Aaron Lammer, Max Linsky, Longform.
2: Hey. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. Um, we've got kind of an unusual episode this week.
1: Yeah, we are re-upping an episode. I believe it's episode 28, which is uh, our interview with Matt Power, uh, both because uh, it's a great episode. Uh, he he's, was one of our best guests, and also, as anyone who listens to this podcast or follows this kind of work will know, he, uh, he died very tragically this year, was a close friend of ours. Uh, he was on assignment. And what we'd like to do now, and the reason we're putting it back out, is uh, we'd like to help raise some money uh, for a cause in Matt's name.
2: The uh, Matt Power uh, Literary Journalism Award. Is that right? Literary Reporting, I think. Literary Reporting Award. Not uh, reportage. (laughs) uh, uh, Is uh, going to fund a young journalist uh, for every year. Hopefully, if we can raise enough money, it'll be in perpetuity to go and do the kinds of stories that uh, Matt himself liked to do. Uh, It's a fitting award for Matt. Uh, One thing that that sort of came out after he died was how many young reporters uh, he had helped along the way. So, Max, how can I give money? You can go to longform.org slash Matt Power. It's going to redirect you to a CrowdRise page, and uh, a donor is matching everything that comes in during this period. So... Uh, Please do go, uh, as soon as you hear this, longform.org slash Matt Power. We've got one more thing. Uh, We have reprinted a a fantastic article of Matt's uh, that has never been online before. The Buddhas of Bamiyan. There you go. Max asked me to pronounce that because I have a um, really great understanding of Afghani history.
1: (laughs) It's a Harper's piece. Uh, It's a real uh, classic of Matt's. you can see his voice in there. You can see his incredible reporting. Uh, we think you'll like it. And uh, before you read it or after you read it, uh, go donate to the cause. It's a great cause. Uh, and uh, we're all, uh, we're all, can't bring Matt back, but uh, we're all pretty excited about uh, what can be made of this.
2: There's uh, links to the campaign on the article. Uh, and here is eminent Matt from February 2013. <music>
3: Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really an honor to be here. I've it's... been, I've, ever since the first podcast, I've been just dreaming of it. So, we
1: should probably do like full disclosure that you're actually a past writer for The Atavist. I am. So, this I is admit. not, there's a chance this won't be the most journalistic, hard hitting podcast <laughs> among all the ones that we've done, some of which are extremely hard hitting. Yeah. Right. Um, so, first, I want, I got to talk about this story in GQ, which uh, should be, is not, when we're talking right now, is not out. So, Maybe you should give a little brief on the story before we talk about what it is.
3: So I uh, went to London to meet up with uh, a group of urban explorers, who were led by this American academic named uh, Bradley Garrett. He grew up in California, but he got his doctorate in um, he got his doctorate at Royal Holloway University in London, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation in human geography. Uh, and the title of it was Place Hacking. So his idea was that uh, infrastructure, buildings, structures, all the sort of uh, physical accoutrements of civilization could be infiltrated, hacked, recoded in a certain way by breaking the rules and going to parts of them or or getting into places that you're not supposed to go. So over four years before I met him, he had gone on this just insane um you know deep anthropological study of this subculture where they had gone into the the tube system in london has something like 14 abandoned uh tube stations mm. that that are not you know currently in use and they would walk down the tracks of the tube to get to these other stations you know and they ticked off every one of them they they went into like like abandoned submarines that were half sunk in the mud in the thames and um there's this 40 acre underground complex that was supposed to be where the shadow british government would operate during the event of a nuclear war mm. that wasn't declassified until 10 years ago or something they like broke into it and drove the james bond villain you know battery operated cars around there, there was a uh Underneath London, there's a 20-mile rail system called the Mail Rail, which was run by the Royal Mail, uh, totally separate from the tube system. And it would deliver mail underneath the city. And they found their way into the system, and the trains were still running. And they drove one of the Mail Rail trains and then derailed it.
1: Um, So basically, they're, they're breaking in to these places finding their way in, either breaking in or sneaking in yeah. some capacity. It's
3: supposed to be low impact, and in theory you're not supposed to damage anything on the way in. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Um,
1: so how, do, how did you know about these guys? So Are they, I, I, uh, uh,
3: the BBC Radio did an interview. The last year, um, the tallest building in Britain, and what was at the time the tallest building in, in Europe, uh, topped out. It's called the Shard. It's this huge a 1000 foot building over london and uh the day that it topped out a bunch of photographs were sent to newspapers around london of black masked explorers sitting on top of this building sitting in the crane like you know making uh you know obscene gestures or whatever they like they they had these this group of guys um had all gotten up there, walked up a 1,000, you know, 75 flights of stairs and taken their pictures up on top. So he, Brad, who has become this kind of de facto, they call it urbex, uh, urban exploration spokesman, um, w- you know, is was on a bunch of radio and stuff. So I, I emailed him, and as just, like, incredible luck, he was a fan of and subscriber to Harper's and knew a bunch of my stories, so uh, I, I sort of, you know, had a good end.
1: Has that ever happened before, that a subject has been like, I'm actually so glad to hear from you, I'm a
3: fan of your work? No, more, you know, no, it had never happened, and it was like, I, I, I kind of almost couldn't believe it, but he, he was like, I'm so glad you're writing this story. I was like, that is the best thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievably rare. Because, you know, you often write these things into some kind of a void. I mean, now with social media and stuff, there's more feedback than there used to be. But you can write a story and never hear a word about it. You know, it's entirely possible. Something you really put, you know, loved. Especially Um, a
1: Harper story as of like six, eight, ten years ago. (laughs) Right,
3: yeah. I mean, uh, and quite literally, like, because... Yeah, until five years ago, I don't think Harper's even had an online archive. Yeah. Um, so.
1: so this guy, he knows your work, so he says, okay, yeah, come on. But yeah. did you have the idea from the beginning that you... you Did you say to him, like, I want to do some of this stuff, or just I want to come profile you and hang out?
3: I, uh, I've always gone in for these sort of interactive projects, and it, this was so much fun to contemplate doing the same stuff that... Um, you know, I don't I don't know if there'd be a really good way to do a story like this without actually going and doing some of the stuff with him. You know, there've been stories written about urban exploration before and there's, you know, the obligatory like, you know, evening in the catacombs or whatever. But um I wanted to take it a bit of a step beyond. And I kind of wrestled with that in the story because here's a story about a guy who has also very explicitly gone native with this group that he's supposedly documenting. And then I was, you know, in the story confronted with the same question. We're totally breaking the law, trespassing, uh, climbed Notre Dame Cathedral. uh, That's the part,
1: I mean, and you actually describe in the story this sort of like journalistic, ethical dilemma of sorts. Sure. Where you've broke, I mean, you've done things like you've gone underneath London and those things are illegal technically. So there's that. But this is something, there's something also kind of like sacred about it in addition to it being illegal and you talk about the consequences of sort of like appearing on the front page of a French newspaper as like Indian American journalists caught like breaking gargoyle off of Notre Dame. I'm just that part of the story. But how much of that was there any question that you were going to do it? Did you pause in that moment and say, like, maybe I'm not going to do this?
3: I, I was I was nervous, but I also I mean, I was I was nervous and it was because of the cultural heritage aspect of it, you know, that it's such a, a fragile um sort of piece of world history that we were I and I didn't consider it desecration. I actually felt ultimately when you know from the top I, I ha- had a sense of the sacred that I don't know that I could have gotten any other way. Um but uh but yeah, it was totally nerve wracking. And I wasn't worried about getting arrested. That would have worked fine with the story. I was really worried about like hurting something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't think I would feel that way about you know ordinary things. You know, it's it's presumably just as illegal to you know sneak down into the the underground in, in London, but mm-hmm. we didn't really worry about that. Right, you're in the sewers.
1: Yeah, probably not gonna yeah, do no, much. going to. Yeah, no, going through the sewers damaged. of
3: London, it would be very hard to break things, even though it's just as important to in you know, the world history. That.
1: But this struck me as uh, just when I was reading, I feel like a lot of people who do this like magazine type journalism features, there's a part of it for many people where, this is especially true for me, where it's sort of like an excuse to go Talk to people and do things that you would not in ordinary life get to do. Right. And this is the ultimate. I'm not sure I've ever read a story that has more of that in it than this. Like you literally can go to the places where, if you visit Notre Dame, you can walk around on the inside and you can kind of look up at the spires and everything. But you are sitting on top of it. Yeah, and it's just like so
3: uh, it immersive. Was, I yeah, and I and I honestly I couldn't resist. There was some aspect of me which I guess is that like uh, that, that, that kid's sense of adventure, which, which I, I don't think I could have resisted even if I'd thought better of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in a lot of ways probably why I became a writer or why I got into this stuff in the first place is because like, I wanted to have the kind of life that I, you know, not to be the story exactly, but I wanted to experience the, the sort of limits of, of things, you know?
1: You talk about that, actually, the opening to this story that you wrote for Harper's about taking up this, like, raft, homemade raft down the Mississippi. The opening of that story, you talk about sort of, like, how you met this guy who was a real, true kind of free spirit, and you always felt like you were drawn back to... You could do these little adventures, but then you were sort of drawn back to something more conventional and then get tired of it and then go out again. Is that how you got... I mean, has that how you got into journalism in the first place?
3: Uh, I mean, I think it was that love of of uh, wanting to both do things and then to tell stories about them. I, I you know, I'd, I I don't know if it was not exactly like seeking for a higher truth, but really wanting to just have an um, uh, the experiential aspect of it be be sort of sort of overwhelming. And actually, it's funny. The raft story is the story that. Brad Garrett, the urban explorer guy had had read and, and known of mine before that makes sense and uh you know and that was a similar story like I had met this guy while I was hitchhiking on the coast of uh, California, and he ended up years later looking for a crew for this this raft that he had built in Minneapolis to sail down the river, and that turned into probably one of the most uh, you know, one of the most first-person stories I I'd, uh, I wrote, where I really had to. It, there, there's no way to be like a neutral observer on a raft because you're all sort of on it together, and, mm-hmm. and you know you're part of it. You can't step to the side and pare your nails and be like, you know, making a, an objective study of of the uh, the raft anarchists, and and that seemed to be the best way to handle it. Um, was to you know to just give in and be a character I f- with this g q one I, I felt like i was less i mean i was I was more on the sidelines sort of watching, but I was going wherever they went you know and so at a point you can't help but be experiencing it yeah um but i think there's a uh there's a spectrum of that kind of stuff i've written other stories where i'm only present in in the most um in a liminal kind of way where you're sort of s- standing off to the side and really letting it be about other people. And I, I think that each story has its point along that spectrum that you have to approach. Like, mm-hmm. I don't always want to be the swashbuckling idiot, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you want you want to be able to be that sometimes because it's fun and suits certain stories. And then other stories, it just doesn't belong at all.
1: And did you, for the in the GQ case, did you... Sit down with an editor beforehand and sort of like, here's, here's who to call if you hear that I'm in London prison?
3: <laughs> I think they, d- I mean, I think they knew that I had done enough sorts of stuff like this before that I would basically know what, know what I was getting into. Um, but I really didn't even know the depth of what I was getting into. Uh, when I arrived, and, you know, anyone who reads this story will get to this pretty quickly. Um, Garrett was arrested the morning I arrived. And so I was left waiting at the airport for him while he was, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, in jail, um, being being interrogated by the police for a totally different um, place that he had hacked into, which was this, uh, this underground World War II era bunker beneath the streets of London that had been hired out as a secure file storage warehouse by this American company. Um, so it, it, very rarely in a story will you have uh, a lead handed to you on a silver platter the moment you arrive in the country. It usually doesn't work that way. You had a
1: couple of reporting strokes of good fortune in this. Yeah.
3: You do have that, uh, I think in your other podcast, Chris Jones called it the ka-ching moment. And I always thought of it more as this, like, you just have a moment when you're talking to someone where where... It, your storytelling neurons start firing, and you realize that like that the goods are being acquired you don't necessarily know that you have them, but you know that they're in the air and and because there's a very I, i've never gotten to a point as a writer where I didn't feel absolutely sick to my stomach when I started out reporting a story you mm-hmm. know? I did a piece uh, for men's journal uh, in two thousand and eight there was this uh, Mountaineering disaster on K2, 11 mountaineers got killed. I somehow, with a single day's notice, persuaded my editor to fly me to Islamabad, Pakistan, assuming that I was going to be able to talk to these people. when so they you, came So you
1: heard that it happened? Yeah. Called an editor, said, I got to go tomorrow.
3: Yeah, $6,000 plane ticket. <laughs> and they flew me. And I literally arrived... And I spent, you know, it's a two-stage, like, 16-hour flight to get to Islamabad, you stop in London. Um, I spent the entire flight over there hating myself for having agreed to do this and, like, like feeling physically that, you know, that pit of your stomach, like, I'm going to, you know, screw the pooch on this. Like, there's no way I'm going to get this story. And they spent all this money on it And already. they spent all this money. I kind of couldn't believe I did it. And then... um I got there. I, my only contact was this fixer that um, a friend had put me in touch with. Within an hour of landing, I had met all of my main characters. Like, there happened to be a press conference going on hmm. when I landed, and we went straight to it. Basically, from going to Pakistan, I filed the story a month later. It was an 8,500-word story. It's like a quick turnaround. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy.
1: So wait, take me through your what? What's your kind of approach to to people? Uh, you know, your sort of initial approach. Like, I feel like some people take the kind of like, I'm here to tell your story and I'm going to do it in a really fair way. And other people sort of kind of come at it as like, I climb mountains too, I, you know, I know what you've been through, sort of thing. Like, do you have a s- sort of standard way you approach a source? Uh, I mean, they've just come out of a disaster, so now you got to persuade them to talk to you.
3: Yeah. And, and this was, I mean, in this circumstance, there were enough people who wanted their story to be told. And um, I mean, one of the hardest kind of stories, as you know, as as I know, to, to get into is one that's like a media clusterfuck, mm-hmm. um, you know, and when, where you're trying to elbow your way, not only past other, you know, long form magazine writers and stuff, but like, uh, the bookers from the Today Show and all of those kinds of people. You know, when there's like you know, diving into a story like that is terrifying and you're almost never going to get anything good. So on a, on a certain level, you have to know when to back off and not try and get a big, huge breaking story because if we don't break stories in that way, with this kind of writing.
1: And a lot of people are also, I mean, a lot of those people are dangling money in various ways in front yeah. of the people, you know, whether yeah, they're from and, or... Money
3: and all, all sorts of various subterfuges. And uh, so the only times I've ever gotten really into stories like that that were big breaking media things is like Katrina. Like I went for Harper's after that, and what I ended up writing was essentially media criticism because it was about... You know, this swarm of of attention, of, of media attention that was descended on New Orleans, having not really cared about New Orleans before, um, and how quickly it also sort of dissipated. So I ended up writing about the Times-Picayune and the, the newspaper of the town that was there before and was there after, um, which was, I, I think, it, it just struck me in that case as the only sort of way to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Because um, you're not going to be beating people to the, you know, human interest story that every journalist was, you know, and and watched the, the coverage of something like Newtown. I mean, you can't even imagine the idea of like having to go to Newtown and get a story is, I, I would rather quit being a journalist. You know, it's just not, although those people were being harassed by every, every satellite truck in the Northeast, you know with with approaching people you know especially people who have had some sort of traumatic thing part of it is timing you know and it doesn't always work and part of it is just approaching them as a as a human you know and like giving them a reason to trust you um which has to do with like actually caring about what you're reporting on you know and 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 i think I don't know I, I mean I've always just liked people, and i'm in, intensely curious about people who are interested in things or have stories to tell so i, I always do really want to talk to them mm-hmm.
1: um yeah I, I I would guess people can mostly tell the difference between someone who's approaching them in a, in a more exploitative way, although yeah you know in the it's all exploitative in some sure. grander sense but or uh,
3: transactional or something like yeah. that but but um but with the kind of stuff we do, it's not as it's. Uh, I mean, this feels less of a transactional kind of journalism than, than the, say, the TV thing. Because what you're really offering someone is just a, ch- you know, and people do really want to tell stories, like almost always, even the worst like things that happen. Like people want to talk. Um, it's a matter of when, you know, and 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 presenting yourself or putting yourself forward as someone who will like. Do some sort of justice to to them, mm-hmm. but you
1: you kind of had uh, like you lived in a some kind of anarchist co op, is that right? Or the uh, squatters colony was it? Was this before you started doing any journalism at
3: all? Uh, it was kind of uh, c- concurrent. I moved to New York at a pretty interesting time in like 1997. Um, I initially came to to go to grad school at Columbia, and then. I Journalism, grad school? No, creative writing, yeah. uh, the MFA program. Yeah. And I hated it. I dropped out after a semester and thought it was, you know, and still think that those programs are a pretty big waste of money. The creative writing programs? Yeah, it's just MFAs in general. Well, what's your, I want to hear your... <laughs>
1: well, I mean, Columbia,
3: Columbia in particular is, is enormously expensive. They give very little funding. Um, I think... You know, it's probably forty-five or $50,000 a year plus living expenses. So you're talking about uh, assuming a burden of debt, unless you're independently wealthy, that would essentially have prevented me from ever being able to actually do the things I've ended up doing, you know. I wouldn't have been able to, if I had a $1,000 in student loans a month to pay back, gone and lived in India for two years or spent, you know been a hobo and done all of the sort of fun stuff that i've gotten to do and and ended up writing about um so i never regretted that i i I left uh, to do an internship at harper's but um around that same time i I had got involved with a a sort of activist um and an activist scene in in new york that uh was based around this this squatted building up in the south bronx and I, i wrote an essay about that for uh for grant a, a few years ago, um, but we got really involved with community gardens, activism, and and social justice uh, things like that. Um, we used to have this amazing building up in the South Bronx. It was there was like ten of us living there, six stories, probably forty apartments. Totally no windows, no heat, Just no electricity. Cabin. Yeah, it had been it had been sort of. Uh, uh, absentee landlord situation for a long time. And then eventually like much of the South Bronx just sort of left. Um, but we like totally, we did, it was great. You know, we would split our own wood from build fireplaces inside <laughs> it and had a teepee where we would have peyote ceremonies in the garden. And it was, it was fantastic. Um, and I really loved that. So this would have been around 1999 or so 2000. And, uh, yeah, you know, I got I uh, got involved with Earth First and a lot of environmental activism stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, I had been an in, intern at at Harper's, so I was really interested in writing and and, and journalism. And I sort of moved away from the activism side of things, also because I hated going to meetings and all of that sort of organizational aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> And I did a lot of freelance fact-checking back then for different magazines. So that that's sort of how I got into writing for stuff. But I think the first story I ever sold was to Spin Magazine, and it was about a group of anarchists in outside of Eugene, Oregon, who were living in trees to, um, to keep them from being cut down. So they had built this interlocking Ewok village 150 feet in the air, and I spent... I worked so hard on that. I have spent probably three weeks with them living in the trees and reported the shit out of it. And then, uh, it been... Wait, I read that piece. I think it was for Feed. It was for Feed. It, what happened was that my editor at Spin, um, who, you know, it was my first piece. I was really nervous and, you know, it was probably, I don't know, like 4,000, 5,000 words long, um... You know, I had never reported anything before. I had never done any of that stuff before. I like, really didn't know what I was doing, but I just was like, I'm just going to do it really hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he, um, I was in a revise for it and he quit. Um, he quit his job. And there wasn't, it just, it's, the writing on the wall seemed clear that there wasn't going to be anyone who was going to pick it up and it was just going to be dead on the vine. So I ended up uh, selling it to feedmagazine.com. Feedmag.com, I think they were called. Yeah. Which was like a proto slate web. It was the first 1. web. 0. Web magazine. Um, <laughs> there was a brief period a couple years ago when they actually put their archive back online. And there's also the Stephen Johnson was involved with the yeah. beginning of it. One like,
1: of our, someone who works at is, Stephanie Simon, was one of the founders, actually. She and oh, Stephen maybe founded she it. Has
3: the maybe she has my story, because I actually don't even have a copy of it. Oh, really? She might have it. <laughs> I have like an early draft. Um, but, but basically, I mean, and this was in the late 90s, you would get paid, I think I got paid 50 cents a word which the internet does not pay now, yeah. you know. You'd get paid much less to write for Slate now. Um, a pretty sort of remarkable and obviously not a sustainable financial model at the time. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a great, you know, that story came out great. And uh, um, another very early story of mine from that same trip was I, uh, I rode freight trains um from Vancouver to Toronto. So I wrote across Canada. And that was for this magazine called Blue. I like um, that magazine. Yeah, it was, was great. It was like a real away. early kind of adventure travel, but it, it wasn't commercial at all. Like, they, you know, they would do a 10-page feature about hopping freight trains, you yeah. know, which is, even today, pretty hard to persuade a magazine to to want to do something that's like... I think I pitched a story on riding freight trains again to National Geographic Adventure when I used to write a lot for them, and uh, and the editor in chief said that it was too dirtbag. <laughs> so <laughs> my friend That's and I beat. decided we wanted, yeah, we wanted to start a magazine called Dirtbag, <laughs> which would be like just the grottiest stories. I mean, I had to cut out the all of the stuff about poop in the uh, GQ piece about going through the the. Uh, Going through the sewers of London—that
1: was too dark for GQ. Yeah,
3: well, I mean, uh, you could imply it, but you couldn't come right out and say it. You know? right. It was fine.
1: You can't sell watches alongside no, that kind. Of you really
3: don't. And nobody's going to want to put a nobody's going to want to put a perfume <laughs> ad right next to that. Was, yeah. You know.
1: So, but you—I mean, if you you started with the kind of like tree sitters, which was you know it's not exactly what you were doing at the time, but you were in that community, sure. so there's a little bit of that write what you know aspect yeah. to that. And then w- could it have gone another way? Like, were you thinking about maybe I could just, maybe I'll stay in this activist community or you just decided, at what, what was the point at which you said, actually, this is what I want to do. I want to go spend time with these people and write about it.
3: I just ended up realizing that I enjoyed the, the writing and the reporting and the, the the, like, I liked the experiential aspect of it, but I've never been much of a joiner. And so, as much as I like admired and respected people who, who you know, devoted their lives to like social justice activism, I, I, I never, I thought my skills were were better played out in actually sort of telling their stories rather than trying to arrange things or organize. Um, which is why, yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it was kind of like a crotchety old man get off my lawn feeling i had at first about occupy i was like these kids we were doing that 10 years ago (laughs) and then i realized you know after a month you know they were really serious about it and um but i don't know if i can um march like that anymore you know i like i'm fascinated by it and i'm fascinated by the people who can really devote themselves to it but i don't think it's my thing, you know, mm-hmm. or I, I'd rather write about it, mm-hmm. you know? which requires to be somewhat uh, distanced. Yeah. Yeah. And are
1: you, um, I mean, speaking of sort of being a little itinerant, not a joiner, you're itinerant in terms of the magazines. I mean, look at the magazines you've written for. It's a really wide collection yeah. of places. And is that by design? Is that if, if someone... Like, were you on contract at a certain point at different places? Oh, or do no. you, you just,
3: like, like no. that? Or that's
1: by... Necessity?
3: I do. I mean, I've always sort of enjoyed the um, the, the challenge gamesmanship aspect of it. Um, you know, I, no, I've never been on contract anywhere. And, and, and I've written for probably 20 different magazines. But I've always, like, my first love and the one that I've gotten to write the most sort of satisfying pieces... For me, it's been Harper's, you know, and, and I think Dave Samuels in the interview you did with him was saying a lot of the same, you know, it's like having been, having come through there when I did, which was uh, like spring of 1998, and just so many amazing people were there at the time, you know, in the intern group before me was Tom Bissell and Ryan Lizza. Um, in my intern group was Donovan Hone, who's an amazing writer and, mm-hmm. and editor, uh, and then you could trace New York publishing through that through that magazine and through the in- internship program yeah in and beyond. I way. mean Clara Jeffrey yeah Cla- Clara that. was the readings editor no she was I'm sorry Clara was the index editor <laughs> so she would be like you know basically like the house uh, the house whip like getting the interns to get the index statistics together <clears> in <time. throat> um, Joel Lovell who's now like, um, at the deputy editor at the times magazine and um roger hodge who who was my first editor there was an assistant readings editor at the time it was just like a an incredible place yeah
1: Um, there's definitely like a tree that traces back to that yeah that intern program
3: so that was uh, all to say it was just like a very exciting time to be there and you know when i got my first assignment from them which was i was going out with a girl at the time who was a, a freelancer for NPR and, uh, she moved to India and I I went there and, and spent, I ended up spending about a, over the course of two years, probably a a year and a half in India. Mm -hmm. Um, it's going back for long, like four or five month trips and, uh, and then, you know, pitching stories that I've found there. And, and that was really, there's much so, like the the advice that i've always given to young writers who are starting out and trying to figure out how to get to do this kind of stuff and i think it still applies even in the sort of atomized fragmented uh media landscape that we live in is to go somewhere interesting mm-hmm. and like at that time india was india pakistan it was super you know there's so much going on not only the stuff with the you know afghan war but just it's a, a fascinating culture. And there weren't a lot of journalists there.
1: So this was, what, 2003, 2004?
3: Yeah, I yeah. first went in 2003. And then I went on and off until mid-2005. And so.
1: was your was that first piece for Harper's, was that about the sort of poisoned yeah. water
3: supply? So So I had a, a friend who's who's now, um, this guy Vinod Joes, who's actually now the editor of Caravan, which is this sort of long-form Indian the, the New Yorker of India. Um, and he introduced me to this this village uh, in Kerala, which is way down in southern India, that had been poisoned by a pesticide runoff, and all these children had birth defects and uh, really high, like, cancer clusters, things like that, and ended up writing this, I think, 11,000-word story for Harper's about India's struggles with modernity and, and sort of... Um, this intersection of, of of culture and science and and um, human suffering and all of that, it, so that that was my first story for them, and and after that things just sort of started rolling, you know, to the point where, I'd always be working on two or three different things,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and that that piece is on the it's on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, maybe, well, maybe you can tell me if you think it is, but from the sort of place hacking thing, which is like a little more fun, there's a serious aspect to it. And I mean, that is, you know, that's the sort of like reporting about real people's suffering. That's, you know, a lot, it's a different kind of story. Do you try to balance them? Do you want to be one of those reporters and not the other?
3: Or uh, do them both? It's funny. I always wanted, you know, I do love the fun stories and the ones where you're sort of like, a character and, and immersing yourself in, in another world, but I did always want to, um, you know, I always wanted also to tell stories that 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 actually mattered, and I don't think I could ever entirely relinquish one for the other. Um, so yeah, and I mean that's the other great thing about Harper's and most of the stuff. I mean, I would say on that spectrum, the the rafting story was the most far into the, you know, gonzo first person that I ever went. Um, you know, my last story for Harper's was about drug resistant malaria in Cambodia. So it was a big public health story and that was much more I mean, I was in the story in as much as to to make clear that I was the one observing things, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think and that's really like something that I think Lewis Lapham uh has given magazine writing and that, the, the the imprint of that, you know, it obviously grows out of the new journalism thing in the 60s, but this idea that there's nothing wrong with the the reporter being a character in the story because, of course, they're there watching, like, almost all, you know, and, and that's what so many great Harper's pieces, Dave Samuel's pieces, he's, um, it has to be first person. I don't think there's a way to tell it that honestly without... At least being aware of your your presence in it and the the fact that you're affecting it in some way because there isn't really a way to report a story without influencing it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wait, I want to go back to what your process is for writing. Just in terms of writing, writing the lead first. Writing. How do you distill?
3: You t- all that? You, t- you take. I mean, I, I'll usually, you know, there's this process, and it's almost like a psychological, like stacking the woodpile process, where I like you know, cause I'll come back with like a garbage bag of like indecipherable notes and like notebooks and like shit I wrote on the back of a ticket and just like put all that in a pile. Um, and then have, you know, all of this now audio stuff. And I take a lot of photographs. I'll t- uh, probably 700 photographs I took in, in, on that, on that urban explorer story, just just to remember every single detail, not even thinking of like composition or artfulness, but just like some funny thing, a sign set or some detail, some graffiti, anything you know just to just so that you can um you know so you can recall it when you're I have a really good memory in general, but like having those kind of cues to to bring you back to the moment that you're trying to describe, and that's such an action driven piece where we're going through like. The catacombs and the sewers and climbing buildings and you know all of these crazy things, like um, i I wanted as much visual memory of it as I could, mm-hmm. so so the the cameras and i mean the iPhone is incredible for that because you can record on it, you can take notes on it, and you can take hundreds of snapshots, um, so that I sort of collate all of that stuff, and then i I, I would say like rather i don 't write anything like a formal. And actually, McPhee talks about this. I don't write anything like a formal um, outline, but I'll end up usually writing like a list of, you know, like a shot order, you know, like mm-hmm. the list of scenes and sort of figure out the connective tissue and, and some kind of structure around that. And then like once that's all there, usually it has to get, you, you know, you get to this point late at night when it's really quiet and then like, that first thousand words drops out, and then it then it really comes quite fast, you know. And often that first thousand words is what um, Donovan Hone, a piece of mine he was editing, called uh, throat clearing, you know. <laughs> and you do have that like or the orchestra warming up, and and that's something that goes back to like I don't know epic poetry where you have the the invocation of the muse, you know. I'll often start a story where I'm just really writing a description of a place, you know, not even a person or something like that. Um, so it really depends um, depends on what the story is. And um, I almost always write much, much longer than I'm allowed. Um, <laughs> and usually with the sort of faint hope that they won't notice and will just be like, oh, yeah, 9,000 words, just like give them the whole well, you know, which is... Which is not unreasonable, I guess, from one perspective. I'm sure there's far more efficient methods that could be done in like the whole reporting and writing process, but I've never figured them out. Um, What's your sort of
1: approach to the, the business, your business of freelancing? You know, you're living in New York. You don't seem to have taken a lot of assignments. Your assignments seem to follow your interests rather than sort of you're doing, you're piecing together. I don't know, maybe do like ad copy stuff on the side. I'm curious how you how you sort of view making a living at this particular...
3: You know, I don't, I, I guess I don't, because the kind of stories I've gotten to do have involved basically fulfilling all of my childhood fantasies of adventure, like having an adventurous life. I've never felt, even though I don't, you know, even though you don't make a ton of money doing it, I've never felt that I was... Um, missing out on something you know i haven't worked in an office since a two-week stint as a fact checker at house and garden magazine in 2001 was the last time i worked in an office so that's 12 years um and i haven't starved to death yet and i'm fine you know and and i th- i think the i mean I, I but i've also always lived in very sort of weird or, or you know um flexible situations you know i I lived for a long time in like an artist collective where i think the rent was i think my rent i lived in a windowless crawl space and i think it was 350 dollars a month or 375 something like that um you know new york is a hideously expensive until you're willing to do some really weird things and then it's not that bad (laughs) Now it's now it's obviously a bit more stable and I'm married and my wife's also a freelance journalist, but we have our own place and, you know, we just sort of make things work, you know, and it's it's fine. And I, I mean, I wouldn't trade I wouldn't trade getting to do what I do for for uh, the compromises that you'd have to make to be like totally stable and, you know, yeah. But you do get faced with choices. I have no idea in the world how I could afford having a kid, you know, or like the time to have a kid, all of that. Um,
1: Yeah, I feel like people ask about that. That's a big concern for people, especially if you find newspaper journalists who want to go freelance or, you know, they're concerned like, well, how do I make the, how do I make this living doing this? And your answer to that is basically you've kind of like built your life around that so live cheaply when you have to live cheaply it's more like adjusting to the reality of checks coming you know and yeah, don't
3: come. you know i mean i think there's also probably a lot of there and being married to another freelancer is like you know obviously complicates that that negotiation i think some people have a partner who's you know whatever a lawyer or something like does some totally different thing um and that's one way of making it work too of course uh, i yeah, I guess for me, it was just literally not really caring about that money aspect of it, you know, and figuring that things were going to sort themselves out but it 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 has to be something that you're constitutionally able to do because I think um it would be terrifying if you if if it was something that made you really anxious it would you'd be very, very unhappy mm-hmm. Because you, you don't, you know, it might be, you might get a check for 10 grand, but you might have to wait two months before the next check comes, you know, or or more um, very easily. So it's like, it, it's all, it's just all a balance. Um, I wouldn't want to be my 24-year-old self that I was. Like, I don't know if New York is that kind of a place now either. Like, I don't know that you can come move to New York and live in a squat and be... A sort of wandering thing and then just start writing like it 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 uh i I've, i feel like i was lucky to have arrived at the time i did and i, I would be anxious if i was trying to start that now mm-hmm. but uh, there's no way to tell if it's really different or not people are doing it yeah the people who are gonna do it are gonna do it regardless i think you know um So it has more to do, I think, with temperament than even historical circumstances, in Mm -hmm. a way.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. you got to write for us again. I will. That's the deal. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. The Long Form Podcast is edited by Lauren Kirchner. And special thanks to our intern, Sarah Amandalare. And uh, check out Matt Powers' Atavis piece called Island of Secrets, if you get a chance. I'm Evan Ratliff of Atavis. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. See you next week.